Welcome to The Highway to Well with Derek Bell, featuring Rachel Drunkenmiller. In 2015, Rachel was voted as the top health and wellness professional in the country by the Wellness Councils of America. She's a catalyst who releases possibilities in people and promotes making cultural shifts in organizations, moving them from transactional to relational. We're also excited to announce she's just launched her new site and company, unmuted.com. Check it out. Of course, after you listen to this podcast. Thank you again. Let's get on the highway to well. All right, Rachel, welcome to the Highway to Well. Hi, thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Sure. This is exciting for me. I know you're, uh, you're, the reason why I wanted to have you here, I'm going to start with that, is that in the field, and and I've been in the wellness field now for 20 years, and, and I've spent a lot of time hearing a lot of professionals talk about wellness as a pathway. And I felt like you have an authentic voice and you have a voice that stems from a lot of empathy and thoughtfulness to the process of living well. And I think, I think it's also because we share this common thread of where we want to focus on wellness as something that's not symptom based or that we're looking at health risk and we're looking at the outputs of what wellness and wellness programs are and keep them siloed in their boxes and live that way. Thinking wellness is just something we do. Mm-hmm. But rather, we look at, we, what we want to do is really focus on the problems and the symptoms and those root causes. And that requires us to examine systems, environments, and the real complexity of choice and make sure that we don't consider our wellness choices based fully on um, the expectation that someone has a personal responsibility and, and, <laughs> and has a skill set to do it that we understand that people live in complex environments and their choice architecture has a lot more to do with how they're making wellness choices. Yeah. And your work has embodied that in, in that journey in a lot of different ways. And so I'm very excited to have you here to talk about that and to help us really examine our own wellness in a way, but also yeah. learn a little bit about where the field, where I feel like the field is going and, and a voice like yours of being a strong one in the field is helping us usher in a lot of really, really good conversations about what it means to live well and where does that fit in in the big picture of everything. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I have Rachel Drunkenmiller here and we're ready to hear a little bit about her path and how she's gotten to where she is in the field today. So Rachel, I'll turn it over to you now. Yeah. So um, it's been an interesting one. It's been not one that I necessarily anticipated. I know that uh, growing up, we took this assessment when I was in high school and it was one of those like things that's going to tell you what your career path is. And when I, when I took it, I also wrote down a list of the types of careers I wanted to pursue. And on this list, I I wrote uh, nutritionist, um, singer, writer, <laughs> doctor, <laughs> and, and one or two other things. And the interesting thing is, you know, fast forward 20 some years, 
And I feel like I sort of have dabbled in all of those, all of those things <laughs> in my career. And I, I come from a place, so both my parents are entrepreneurs. My dad is a management consultant and he's been doing that work for over 40 years. And my mom is a financial planner and she started her company 21 years ago after she and my dad went to a Tony Robbins conference. <laughs> <laughs> they came back and they like walked on coals and they did all the things that he makes people do. And yeah. um, I just, I always had this model of, you know, work is something exciting and work is something purposeful and meaningful. And it is something that you create your own reality around. And so when I started in my, in my role at SIG, a, a benefits consulting firm, I started as an intern and I was just doing what interns do, answering phones and, you know, taking boxes to storage. And when I graduated from college, I studied psychology there. I did some research with a couple of professors and then I met someone who had studied corporate wellness as a grad student. I'd never heard of the industry before. This was in 2007 and I didn't really know what it was about, but it seemed to combine my interest in health and human behavior. So I really dug in. I, I joined the Wellness Council of America, uh, WALCOA, that fall and said, oh, well, I guess I'll just be the wellness coordinator. Seems like what I want to do. And I'm going to, I think wellness coordinators do newsletters and I think they <laughs> looks like they do fitness challenges and surveys and it looks like they bring yeah. in healthy snacks. Yeah. Spot <laughs> <laughs> <Bought> on. <laughs> so I just started doing the things that other wellness people seem to be doing. And, um, I was excited about it and people were really receptive and, I blew my budget in my first year because um, we did a fitness challenge and it was like 10,000 steps a day, which everyone had pedometers and was doing this 10 years mm. ago. And I, the, I, the, the prize was a day off of work if you averaged 10,000 steps a day for eight weeks. <laughs> now, I believe the statistics, which said most people walk an average of 4,000 steps a day. I was like, there's no way. And sure enough, 25 people... <laughs> <laughs> got their day off. They got their day off. And I went to the CFO and I was like, so, um, that was fun. But I, I really, it was this very, um, my dad calls the work. He does this very interest driven work. And so as I had interest in the wellness space, I started reaching out. I started listening to webinars from a variety of places. And I started reaching out to people who seemed to be doing things differently than other people. Mm -hmm. And I didn't let the fact that I was 23 and had a made up job and not really many credentials. I, I didn't let that be a barrier to who I could talk to. So I joined LinkedIn in, 20, in 2006 and I just started reaching out to people. I kind of, I, I took the, the model that my parents kind of ingrained in me and began experimenting. And I had the opportunity to do a lot of things within our organization and then with the clients I was working with. And over time, I kind of discovered over the past five years in particular, I discovered my interest in, in speaking. Mm -hmm. And um, I had gone through several trainings. I became a health coach. I went back to grad school. I did some certifications around workplace culture. And I started to realize in the midst of my own kind of health journey of being malnourished and struggling with some body issues that wellness was more than telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. And it was more than guilting people and it was more than shaming people. And just because someone looks healthy doesn't necessarily mean that 
that they are. Because that's what had happened to me. I lost a bunch of weight and everyone told me how great I looked and I secretly kept to myself, you know, for a year that, oh, I'm, I'm malnourished actually. That's why I <laughs> look so skinny. Um, and I, that was really the catalyst for me. I, I got recognized in 2015 by Walcoa as their number one health promotion professional in the US and that gave me a platform. I applied the last day the thing was due. I was like, you know, I'm this chick nobody's heard of with a weird name. <laughs> like, yeah. Lives in Baltimore who works for a company that, you know, isn't a big name company. And I like, I won the thing and I was like, holy cow. Okay. And I, I just had the opportunity there to, to, I had the opportunity to have a platform for the first time and to speak to my peers for the first time. And then I got invited to speak the following year at their annual training summit. And I, I shared my story publicly about the perception of, of health and what was actually true. And to begin to create a more honest and real conversation about what it means to be healthy instead of just taking what we see at face value. Yeah. And I think there, and we'll, I hopefully we'll talk about all this. I just, I think there's a wealth of pieces that are so important and, and along your path, I think, and there are, there are definitely, there's definitely a voice around in the field. And, and I guess you could say it's kind of like, we're trying to connect these dots and having conversations with others in our field that are getting beyond what almost is like a, the core academic training of what wellness professionals are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just, and I just spoke with, um, Corey Huck, who's the professor, uh, the chair of the health promotion and wellness program here. And he's done a tremendous job of taking an academic program and saying this, whatever we've been doing for the past 15, 20 years is great, but it's not changing the, it's not changing people's lives in the way that we want it to. So how can an academic program change? Mm -hmm. But you know, we get into the field and, and we can, in you know, on my work in the healthcare setting and yours on the benefit side is we see organizations that are deeply rooted in their silos. And oftentimes wellness is a, is a side box. It's a checkbox on the side here that if you're doing a wellness program, that typically means you're probably doing a screening and a lunch and learn. You're mm -hmm. not actually changing lives, but you're just providing some awareness tools Mm -hmm. but they're usually tied to some incentive or benefit design plan that is requiring or, or even to the point of sometimes guilting people into participating, which completely debases the whole premise of what we want to do to try to motivate people. But, but you're, you know, as you've, as you've gone on your path too, like you're, you're now in the position where you're talking and having a voice and having a platform to talk about that moving that focus away from those check boxes into what living a well life is. Mm -hmm. And, and what does that really mean? So what questions should we be asking? And so I, and I keep coming back to, and part of this is my, my academic training came from sociology, philosophy, mm -hmm. and political science. And my, my education and wellness came both as a professional and then in my graduate work. So mm -hmm. I actually, so I, I tend to, I tend to look at things and start deconstructing them like a sociologist, thinking about groups of people mm -hmm. and how meanings, how we make sense of our worlds. And so a lot of cues from communication and marketing and how people 
are um, what they're how they communicate their worlds, and so that mm-hmm. worldview and that hegemony is always important. But um, and I've had really some really good conversations lately with um, Sean Foy, who's another professional uh-huh. that we both are um, connected with and, and appreciate all the work that he does. And I think Vic Strecker is one of the leaders in this movement to talk about the full, like wellness is not really that much different than, than the largest philosophical questions that we can really ask. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to live a well life? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to, to be connected? And what are our basic human needs? And mm-hmm. if we fulfill those, we're pretty, I'm pretty sure you were, we can, we're going to assume that there's a well life being lived if you fulfill those basic needs. So how does wellness, how, how do wellness get put in a box way over to the side when what we're really talking about is that existential human journey to mm-hmm. being fulfilled in our own life? I think what happened is, you know, a lot of it is that we, we medicalized it because we like things that we can control. And we like things, especially in the business world, we like things that are predictable. (laughs) And a lot of people like to think in a very linear way that if I, you know, A plus B always equals C. And people are so unpredictable. I mean, one of the things that I've learned through um, going through a training with um, Rosie Ward and John Robeson, Mm -hmm. one of the things they talk about is how you know, it's, it's human beings and and the behavior change is more like, like quantum physics. Like it is unpredictable. It is complex. Um, and I think oftentimes when it comes to wellness, we assume, oh, if I give the person the knowledge that their blood pressure is high, then they're going to be so motivated that they're going to go home and change that. And they're going to eat differently and start exercising and manage their stress. And if I just send them enough emails and post enough flyers telling them to do all those things, then they should just do them. If I touch them seven times, they'll learn. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then if they don't, if I pay them enough money, then they'll behave. And what we have focused on, unfortunately, too much is we have focused way more on compliance than we have on commitment. And we have, we have looked at what can we do to get people to do stuff as opposed to what do people need to be well? And so we've not been asking the right questions. How do I lower someone's blood pressure? All of my claims for diabetics, how do I fix that? Well, if we understood some of the things that drive these issues, like stress, for instance, it would be much more beneficial to look at what are the factors within your control as an organization that might be affecting people's stress levels, like Mm -hmm. expectations around their role, career pathing, having opportunities to grow and learn, having a sense of what their financial future looks like there, Having managers that know how to treat and lead people like human beings and not widgets and robots. Like we have unfortunately marginalized wellness to be almost exclusively focused on physical health. And return on investment dollars. And return on investment. And I have to say, one of the things that I would encourage people to do, because again, this is me, I'm the, I'm the kid who... <laughs> Growing up, if, if 30 people were doing something and I didn't believe in the core of who I was that it was the right thing to do, I would be the lone wolf and I wouldn't do it. And I don't say that to make any other point than sometimes you have to be willing to be courageous and stick with your guns. And for me, I was questioning the ROI stuff 
for years early on in my career. But when you're a young woman who's in her mid twenties, who like, you know, doesn't, hasn't lived in the world yet, you're often diminished. You're often um, kind of battered away as being an idealist. Uh, you're dismissed a lot of times. And so that would happen to me. And I was so insistent for so long that when the, when the tide started to turn in wellness, and we started to say, oh no, it's really about the whole person. And we can't just say it's about ROI, that I could have some integrity around the fact that I stuck with what I believed, even if it wasn't popular. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what thought leaders do. Thought leaders are willing to kind of like buck convention and they're willing to have thoughts that are different than the mainstream. And they're willing to ask questions. And oftentimes people are not comfortable being questioned because they feel threatened and are not comfortable with curiosity. And for me, that's how I've gotten as far as I have with my work is I've just been so curious and just wanting to learn as much as I can and, and not taking things at face value. And so I think, I think we've done what we've done as an industry because it's what we were told to do. It's what we were told worked and we wanted something that we could control that was predictable. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to get into the messiness of humans. And if you're going to experience transformation, like that's inevitable. (laughs) (laughs) And it's time consuming. And and oftentimes organizations, that's the last thing they want is their wellness program to take up time. So if they've already compartmentalized it and said, it's a program, Mm -hmm. now you want to take my employees time. Mm -hmm what am I, how, how is, how am I supposed to produce more if, if you're asking them to, to spend more time just really on themselves, which already can lead to many discussions, but, um, but it is, it's, it is, it is just one of those big organizational issues. It's, you want people to love where they work. So they show up every day invigorated and working for the cause, Mm -hmm. but then you limit the tools to really make that happen. And then you expect people like us to come in and fix those problems and then be able to put a dollar amount on all of it, yeah. which is, which is a incredibly complex set of issues. If when, and then, you know, for people like us who come and say, well, actually I don't want to talk about wellness in just terms of health risk, but I want to talk about it in living vibrantly. I want to talk about the pursuit of your purpose Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't go over too well in an organizational <laughs> setting mm-hmm. oftentimes. And, and so you get into these, these discussions of how to do it. And, and, you know, and that's where I would love to see the, I would love to see organizations unwrap their wellness program and wrote and have it woven into the fabric of the everyday culture. And it's interesting because if you listen to um, anytime someone talks about the best organizations and the most vibrant places to work, they oftentimes don't they may not really have much of a wellness program or they have bit parts that are there as a resource or a tool for people. But oftentimes the overall culture is the wellness program. People are invested in their jobs. Like you were talking about the key things are, do they feel like their work matters? Do they feel like they're valued as an employee? Do they feel like they're being taken care of? Do they feel like they have a foundation to grow? Do they have the resources to become a better professional? Mm-hmm. Well, those things are not often part of wellness programs. And yet, if they were, organizations would grow. And, and I know, yeah, John and Rosie are two big proponents of that. And, and I love, uh, years ago, I brought John in to do a keynote at the National Wellness Conference. And 
And I love, he asked big questions. He's a contrarian sometimes to a lot of what the thought, the traditional thought processes are in the field, but you need that person. You need that person asking those questions to help us say, maybe, maybe we should take a step back. Maybe all these wellness models, these perfectly placed pie models that we've created that break down wellness in our seven dimensions are actually a little problematic mm-hmm. because we've started to silo components of our life that have overlapping themes like, um, like connection, like contribution to your world, like creativity and care, like your self-care and caring for others. I can't compartmentalize those and we shouldn't. And you, you know, and Ryan and Walcoa, I love last year when they put out their wellness model, mm-hmm. um, they kind of got away from a pie chart yeah. and had a list of things that we value. And going back to like what you've written about and talk about too, is some of those basic human needs, the connectedness, the the value of human connectedness alone. And I think I I remember reading in one of your blog entries, you you pointed out that um, there are four, like four factors that impact early death. And, and one of those being, well, one of those being obesity, one of the things we talk about in our field, a lot of obesity and loneliness and how obesity had increased um, risk by like 20 something percent, but mm-hmm. loneliness was somewhere around 45% increased yeah. risk for early death, mm-hmm. more so than air pollution and alcohol abuse. Yeah. <laughs> we might want to pay attention to this. It's, and it's well within our span of control, mm-hmm. which is crazy. That's the crazy part. It's within our span of control. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, I think it's I, one of the reasons I'm so connected to the topic of, of, uh, of loneliness and connection and belonging. And I'm speaking about it actually at the wellness council of Wisconsin, um, conference in September is because I've struggled with those things. Like I, I grew up, um, feeling like I didn't necessarily fit in. I went to very small schools for my entire life. And I, I have, you know, journals from elementary school and, uh, that I can look back on and I know like what I was feeling and thinking. And I, I struggled with feeling alone and I struggled with feeling like I belonged and like I was wanted, uh, by my peers in particular. And, and so I have a, I, I have this sensitivity to inclu- inclusion and belonging. I think belonging being a stronger word than inclusion, because belonging is the sense that, you know, it's not like a box check, where it's like, oh, you're included. Like we included you because we're supposed to. But it's like belonging is so deep rooted and it is something that we are born to do. We are hardwired to need to belong and to find a place where who we are is acceptable. And um, not only acceptable, but who we are is encouraged and who we are is loved. And one of the things I've realized in my work, um, just from a speaking standpoint and, and writing, is that you know the, when you're asking about basic human needs, I think the the basic needs that we all have are first of all the need to feel the need to feel safe, like to feel like psychologically safe to be who we are, the need to feel seen, heard, valued, known, and appreciated. And so many people don't feel those things at work and outside of work. Mm-hmm. And so. I believe that many of the manifestations of health issues we have going on today is because there is a lack of connection between human beings and there's a lack of connection kind of be- between, between individuals, uh, between groups of people, and even within people. I think a lot of people haven't necessarily done the deep work that they need to do 
to get at whatever their own stuff is. Because if you're showing up dysfunctional because you haven't addressed whatever your, you know, inner demons are, whatever the things are that are preventing you from being your best, like that's, that's going to impact like through osmosis, you know, mm -hmm. kind of impact anybody that you engage with. And that's one of the reasons why I think we have such dysfunctional workplaces because everyone's coming a bit broken to work mm -hmm. and they're expecting, you know, we used to have community centers and we used to have neighborhoods where people talk to each other or faith-based centers where people got social needs met beyond work. And these days it's like Netflix and the workplace. Like those are the places <laughs> and the bar, it's like Netflix, mm -hmm. the bar and the workplace. Like these are the places where we connect and we're just missing we're missing it like we're, we're not having the depth of connection that is really needed to have someone feel whole and that's one of the reasons why i am doing the work that i do because i i i, I know what it feels like to be in that spot and it, it pains me and so i want to like relieve that pain i want to help other people relieve that pain yeah yeah and and it's one of those things so there's a whole and I, we can dive in as, as much as you want but i you know I, I know that every time we start talking about connectedness too like there's this part to social media that there's a there's a point of connectedness there that i think we've misinterpreted mm -hmm. you know that and and i talk to i talk to young people that i work with a lot about friend just the word friend mm -hmm. because it's new they live in a world where a friend is different than a friend at someone that's our age or, or older and, mm -hmm. you know, friends were, um, honest and you, you had a relationship with that person. You, mm -hmm. you called certain people friends and yet it's easy now to have thousands of friends, none of which you've met and <laughs> most likely are, are the people that they say they are, but not always, but also you have relationships that, that have a, a confusing context to them. Mm -hmm. and you know, I've, I read a really good book recently hacked. Um, um, it's, a it's called Zucked, but it's talking about brain hacking and mm. how Facebook has their, in their desire to connect the world, they've misconstrued like that definition of friend group and connection because mm. everything is built on an algorithm based on what our likes are. So yeah. in your, in your, clicks and your time spent on something determines the algorithm. So my friendships or my points of view about the world are being impacted by my social media activity. Then I've already, I've started building that in what, what it, um, the argument in Zuck was is these filters and these, they, they remove the context of honest, sincere, authentic relationships and understanding and knowledge. Like it's, yeah. it's whole, it's been debased in that way so that we're unsure of, of the authentic authenticity of that information, but also um, how do we connect? How, how are we actually connecting with people when um, we feel like, you know, posting something and getting a like, if that's a, that if we're confusing that hormonal impulse mm -hmm. as something that's positive and a connection with honest, sincere human connection, Yes. then we're driving ourselves into um, a divisive form of living based mm -hmm. on filter bubbles. <laughs> mm -hmm. And to your point about connection is what, and I love that you talk about it in terms of belonging. So how do we define belonging to a group of 
of like young people that are moving up through a social media age where that is a different word to them. Friends are different words to them than how they are to us. Yeah, that is, that is totally true because it's, you know, connection request, right? We've almost like diluted the word connection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and to your point, yeah, I mean, it tells you when you log on, you have 1500 friends mm -hmm. or on, it's about, you know, and then followers too, right? Like, like link, you know, LinkedIn, you can look at LinkedIn and say, oh, I have 7,500 followers. So that must mean something. And at the end of the day, like which of those people, when you're in crisis mode, cares? Exactly. And we have done such a great job of protecting ourselves at the expense of connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. Because we want to maintain a facade that we are fine and that we are actually we're more than fine. We're great. We're great. We're doing so well because if we're not doing so well and our life isn't amazing, then it's like something's wrong with us. And that like the reality is like life is messy and like sometimes like life sucks and sometimes it's awesome, but other times, you know, it's difficult and it's unpredictable and we get mad and we get more saddened by things. And we don't give ourselves the opportunity to experience the range of emotions that is normal for a human being. And so then there's just all this vitriol out on social media. It's on LinkedIn too. And it is in our industry. I have one of the things I have intentionally done just a slight, slight offshoot, but mm -hmm. one of the things that I've intentionally done in terms of how I position myself on social media, like particularly on LinkedIn is that I've chosen to be a voice to be kind of like a, a kind contrarian. Like I've done it in a way intentionally because it feels like I'm living in integrity and authenticity doing this. That I can question things in a way that doesn't diminish another person. Mm -hmm. Or I can present an idea that might be different than the norm and the standard, but I can do so in a way without completely obliterating the reality of the person who might still think that way. And there's a thing that my dad, one of the quotes, my dad's like my Yoda, but one of the things he said is, um, you know, we used to be able to disagree without being disagreeable and people don't know how to do that anymore. Like they don't understand that another person's reality can be their reality, even if we disagree with it. And part of the challenge with communication is that if you look on social media for a second, if you disagree with somebody politically, uh, that's often politically, but on some other grounds that is a personal issue, it's like character assassination. I mean, you are suddenly a horrible person. And, and I think that that has built, that has, that mindset has kind of uh, invaded our workplaces a bit too. And there's just this culture of being so easily offended by things. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's causing people to just like be on guard all the time and that creates stress. And so part of it is, you know, by just beginning to adopt a mindset of, of curiosity. And if someone says something you disagree with, say, hmm, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Like, so that's, that's interesting. Um, I see things differently, but tell me more about that. I'd like to understand you better. Mm -hmm. If, if we didn't change anything else and we just intentionally did that more, like the world would be a better, saner place. <laughs> Just start with, tell me more. <laughs> Just replace that negative thought with, oh, tell me more. Yeah. Learn a little. Is it, yeah, that's wonderful. And, and this may be a good time too to transition. So, you know, you talk about the workplace, like that you're, you're 
so some of the projects that you're building on is is igniting intentional leadership is one of the one of your goals and one of your initiatives and and I think you know we've talked about leadership and organizations and the in and we we have challenging environments to be fair the workplace of today is is so dynamic and things move at at a pace that I think it is almost impossible for everybody to keep up. Mm-hmm. Just yes. In, in just in the big picture, we're all fighting the same fight. Mm-hmm. But in in with with the amount of of pressure for either organizations that are blending um, or organizations that are under budget constraints or restraints politically or by their own um, in their own marketplace or you know the competing small shops versus big shops, whatever the whatever it is that we're all facing. Um, there's a lot of overlap in, in how stressful organizational life is today and the expectation of mm-hmm. leaders to try to navigate this for us. And that's yeah. some of the work that you're working on now. So I'd love to, love to hear what you've, what you've been doing with leadership and, and how that can help us. Yeah, so I, I think I channel one of uh, Bob Chapman, the CEO of Barry Way Miller, and right, wrote the book, Everybody Matters. One of the things that he has said pretty extensively in his work is that you know, we don't have a, there is a healthcare crisis, sure, but we have a leadership crisis. We have a leadership crisis. We have a, a generation of, of leaders that were not, that maybe grow, kind of emerge from a command and control approach to work, which is not how we function anymore. It's really not, you know, we're the knowledge and purpose economy, which is different than the industrial revolution. And so part of it is kind of these really outdated habits of managing people and communicating with people that's, um, not really rooted in an understanding of human dynamics. It's more so, again, assuming people are like machines. And so the work that I've become really passionate about, um, which you said was igniting intentional leadership, I, I start a lot of times with, with self-awareness. There's, it was funny, I was reading an article in Forbes and, and they were saying that if you ask people 95, this one study they did, 95% of people said that they were self-aware. <laughs> Kind of like everyone says they're a good driver, right? Like, oh, I'm a great driver. Like, why all the accidents happen, you know? Um, (laughs) And and at the end of their research, they were like, only about 10 to 15% of people are really Mm self-aware. And that's one of the first issues because we have people walking around with absolutely no conscious awareness of how the way they are showing up and engaging with people is either positively or negatively impacting those people. And part of it is we're not aware. One of the things I talk about is how we respond to stress, for instance. So there's this dynamic um, about the, the, the turtle and the tiger and the turtle when it's a state of stress, it's like somebody who minimizes. So they kind of like retreat and withdraw. And then the tiger, when they're in a state of stress, they like, feel like they're going to pounce on you. You know, they like kind of, externally process their emotions. And most people, if they just begin to have more awareness around which of those, you know, and it's not exclusive, right? But generally people kind of lean toward one or the other, they would begin to realize that, oh, okay, if I'm a tiger, I'm doing this because I don't feel like someone has my back. And so what can I do to ask for what I need, Hmm. which is really hard to do. And then if you're the turtle, it's like, oh, well, the reason I'm not feeling safe is because I don't have space. And so I need someone to give me space to process. And so I, that's one of the things I teach leaders is kind of understanding one, how are you wired? I'm really big on strengths-based leadership. 
So doing work around looking at character strengths, looking at values, um, looking at like Clifton strengths, because I think a lot of people have strengths blind spots. And so one of the reasons they're acting out so much is because they're insecure. Like people who act out, generally speaking, are either totally clueless or somewhat insecure or very insecure. And so if you can connect people to the things and kind of almost like remind them, remove those blind spots of, hey, this is like the core of who you are. This is what you naturally do really well. Let's talk about how we can leverage that. Mm-hmm. I think that alone, if more leaders were just having that conversation around, around having more awareness of what they bring to the table and how someone else could complement that if there's something they're lacking in. Like I'm not incredibly strong in the area of, uh, let's see, being disciplined and highly structured. And so it benefits me to partner up with people that are, but then I really love to live in the world of ideas and possibilities. And that person who's super structured doesn't think that way. So we're all needed. And part of it, when we focus on strengths-based leadership, we realize that even the most difficult people have something to offer. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say self-awareness is the the first step. And that's in some of the work that I do is is really giving people tools for how to increase their self-awareness. And Another very simple one is just is simply by asking for feedback. We don't ask for feedback. So after every time I give a presentation, I ask what's one thing I did well. My friend Andrew Sykes kind of introduced me to this concept. What's one thing I did well? What's one thing I could do differently? Mm-hmm. Is there anything I could have done differently? And I ask that after meetings and I ask it after presentations. And I really want to know. I'm not just I'm not doing it to check a box. Mm-hmm. I ask the question. And that can increase self-awareness, but we have to be willing to receive the answers when we ask the question, which if yeah. we're not willing to be self-aware, we are in denial when we hear something other than what we want to hear. <laughs> right, right. I think we could probably just go on a whole tangent about feedback in and of itself. And yes. What does it mean? How do you create a feedback loop that mm-hmm. actually is productive? And are you vulnerable enough to allow that to happen? Because Oftentimes feedback, especially in organizational settings, is designed for a specific purpose and outcome that you're looking for. And it's not as open-ended as it should be for us to really understand, learn, and grow. Like, right. like you said, I mean, if we expect people to make behavior change, then we also need to prepare ourselves for the complexity of that. Mm-hmm. And if we're trying to cater whatever message we have to as many people as possible, we need to hear all responses and try to understand that. Yeah. And, and along those lines, that's where and, and some of the other piece that, that I invite people into is, is really about empathetic listening. I mean, the simple thing we were just alluding to earlier, tell me more about that, or let me see if I got that. Did I get that mirroring? My husband and I went to a marriage retreat six years ago because we struggled with communication because I come from an outspoken entrepreneurial family and he comes from a different family. And we had trouble with communication and we've been together for seven years and we learned and experienced the power of, of mirroring someone else kind of, you know, repeating back what you heard them say, validating their experience and empathizing with them. And, and we, we don't do those things, but those are the things that really make someone feel seen and heard and valued. Mm-hmm. And most of us, when do you ever learn those skills? There's not like, empathy 101 class in high school or college. Adults are not taught these things. And 
the workplace is the most logical kind of avenue to bring out these these teachings and this type of training and insight because otherwise we're going to keep dealing with this this high level of dysfunction if people aren't equipped with the skills they need to basically be better human beings mm -hmm. yeah empathy empathy i is on that of all things that we could continue to discuss and try to figure out ways to improve organizational life which by doing it there like you said i mean the workplace or the organizational site is such a great place because it provides first of all practice mm -hmm. you practice you have to practice empathy daily if you're in an organization and then and then you get to you go through that process of trying to figure out how to be empathetic and not be um, judgmental or condescending or whatever way that you might think you're being fairly empathetic, but to really try to practice empathy. I, yeah. And that, that is such an important skill. And, and I, I talk about it with my high school athletes. Mm. I'm a high school soccer coach. And we talk about that because in order for us to be a team, a functioning team, we have to be able to um, understand where other people are coming from. Mm -hmm. And it is a hard concept and it isn't easy and it does challenge them because they have very much, um, they have high or they have judgmental opinions. And so, and those go, those kids go on to college and then those, again, there, they're not learning empathy. So by the time we become adults, empathy is either embedded in us or we learn it through a circumstance and it's usually a tragic circumstance. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, on the list. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we're not we're not equipped necessarily and and so i mean the experience is so fascinating because when you do this and you can do it literally it's five minutes where you give the person the opportunity to share about something that's important to them or experience they had recently that um, they learned something from or something that was challenging by giving them the space to share what their experience was and then instead of doing what most of us do which is like are you done yet Oh, are you, are you finished? Are you finished? And I'm going to look at my phone to tell you that I don't really care what you have to say, but I'm going to pretend that I'm interested. Mm -hmm. If we were to just have a little more self-awareness to recognize that, I mean, I've seen it happen. I've seen people in conversations, someone sharing something really excitedly. And then the person they were talking to got distracted by something else that they thought was more interesting. And I've literally seen them completely like put a wall up between them and the person talking to them. And I have seen like a balloon deflating all of the joy and, and, and excitement coming out of that person's face who was sharing. And it's, it's devastating because that basically says to the person who you are, isn't worth paying attention to. Right. And that might sound harsh, but when we look at 70% of the workforce being disengaged, it's because people have experiences like that on a daily basis at work. Mm -hmm. but they don't feel like someone's excited about what they have to offer where they don't feel like someone's soliciting from them. Like, you know, like, what do you think about this? Or what do you think we should do? People aren't asking enough questions and they're not involving enough people in, in the process to really find out what it is that people need and want. And, and so I would say curiosity is perhaps one of the un most underrated uh, leadership traits that, that really strong leaders, not only are they self-aware, not only are they empathetic, um, you know, not only are they curious, but they also have this, they have this warmth about them. 
Mm-hmm. They have this desire to know people and they have, they have a curiosity about people and wanting to understand them. And I, and I think that if, if we could begin in our, in our day-to-day conversations, when we're talking to someone, we might ordinarily talk for two minutes and boom, walk away, right? Or end the conversation that we would just try to start digging a little bit deeper, not to be intrusive, not to spread gossip, but to give that person the floor and to really get to know them a bit. Um, it's not that hard, but we think we're so afraid of crossing a line that we stay segmented and we stay disconnected and we stay out of touch and we remain dysfunctional because we're not willing to perhaps, even if we have an offense, even if we ask something that might cross a line or something like that, it makes someone uncomfortable, whatever happened to like grace and forgiveness to say, oh, you know what? Instead of just responding, instead of responding to that person with like such offense, how dare they do that? What about just, what about offering them I did, I did a video on LinkedIn about using the word just, and I'm mindful of, of how much I'm using it now <laughs> and how it diminishes things. <laughs> so I keep catching myself. But that alone, to take interest in another human being and to then follow up with them. You know, you see them a week later. Hey, you were telling me about your uncle and how, you know, he had a heart attack. How's he doing? We, we don't do stuff like that, mm-hmm. except with our closest friends. And we have countless opportunities to do things like that. If we're willing to invest in people and to find out a bit more about their lives and create space for them to share what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's such a critical, uh, that, that I would ask, you know, usually is indicative of that culture and oftentimes a leadership and not always a leadership because you may have leaders in place who really agree with these things, but you have a workforce where there's negative energy of some kind. I've been doing a lot. I've been reading a lot of John Gordon this summer mm. <laughs> as I'm getting prepped for my high school soccer season. I'm reading tons <laughs> of stuff about teams and sports teams. And, you know, so I'm full of, I'm full of these analogies, but I've really enjoyed, and I've started reading a couple of these, the kids versions to my son about the hard hat, the story of the hard hat. And, and, and so what, what does it mean to be the best teammate? And then, and what is, you know, for kids, like, what does that mean? But then that the, his, um, his book, the energy bus mm-hmm. and being, and I, and I think, you know, the, the key concept of all of that is just be a come with me person, mm-hmm. be a come with me teammate. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially, you can put different, attributes under that. But if you're a come with me person, it means that people trust you. They know that you care. They know that you have their interest in mind and you're part of something going back to your concept of belonging. Like we all want to be part of something special. Um, and, And I grew up playing team sports partly because of the feeling of what it, what it's like to be in a group of people. And my best, my best teams or the best I felt about them haven't always been where I maybe had the most impact, like on the score sheet, but where I felt most involved in the process or what my role was important to, and try to make everyone better, which is probably why ultimately why I went into coaching is that's just how I've always seen the game. And so, you know, those, that you put that in the organizational setting. And if you have come with me leadership, then these things, hopefully start to work themselves out and people feel 
they feel like they can take the opportunity to, to be connected because oftentimes they're taking the cue from the leader. And, mm-hmm. and I know we've been in how many workplaces in, in our field where we show up to do a wellness program. We're supposed to be talking about how to live healthy behaviors. And then you see the opposite happening all around you. So people feel unwilling to talk. They feel unwilling to mm-hmm. have a conversation at the water cooler. Mm-hmm. They, they know their lunch breaks are very time limited and and yet, you know, and one of the people I did a podcast with earlier, Greg Wright, he, he shared with me one of, one of the pieces that he likes to talk about is creative time off and mm-hmm. trying to talk organizations into building creative time off. And one, um, one of the pieces of research that he was looking at, um, and I forgot the company name, it was a larger company that gave their employees an extra 30 minutes of lunch because what they discovered was all their employees were creative problem solving during their lunch hour. They were talking about how to make their processes better and they gave them an extra half hour lunch and they found that their productivity and their teamwork improved. Hmm. So just giving them more time to gather created yeah. a better work environment without having to add programming, without yeah. having to bring in <laughs> you know, vendors to try to build a, a better culture. They made a, they made a decision that well, probably on the cost sheet, they lost productivity in some way, but they gained yeah. it in another way. So on all those nuts and bolts and ROI reporting that everyone likes to have, it was there too, but it, it came back to understanding that if you give people the time to talk more, you're really giving them a clue on how they, you're really telling them a lot about what you think of, about them and value them and their, and their ability to work together better, which was just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I heard along those lines kind of creating these little, you know, almost like these, these micro moments for people to, have these experiences, you know, or in a slightly more extended moment by a half hour at lunch. I was talking to a guy at Pete Shepard, who I'm doing some work with. And um, he, he said, when we were talking about empathy and one of the questions that he'll have a, you know, a group that's, that's meeting together, start the conversation with, start a meeting with is go around with something you're excited about. What's something you're looking forward to? And I know we've done in our wellness team meetings, you know, what's something you're grateful for. We've also done, you know, what are you excited about this weekend or this summer or this season or whatever? And it it creates, it it, it sets the foundation and the expectation that we are going to connect as human beings first and as colleagues second. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there's certain things that may not at work. Like there's certain things, like if you just had a full on blowout with your spouse and it was terrible that not everyone that you work with needs to know the details of that. Like that's like go to therapy with that, but it might be helpful if in a workplace to say, you know, that I had a difficult morning and I would, it would really help me to kind of process this. If I could, you know, leave early today and work from home, or if I could have an extra half hour this morning to just kind of get myself into a better headspace that we would create workplaces where people could ask for permission to do stuff like that mm-hmm. instead of having to hide it because the energy it takes to hide something that's that painful a hundred percent affects that person's performance and productivity and collaborative effort at that day. I mean, it does. There's not this idea of the, my personal life and my work life. I mean, again, there's a line, certain things don't need to be shared or may not be appropriate to share at work, but to think that as if, as if you are a different being, yeah. <laughs> the second you walk into an office or a factory or the institution, like that's just, it's not, it's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's, you know, those are things that oftentimes, you know, we, it's a, so that that's what the wellness professional is supposed to help with. <laughs> we're supposed to fix. It's funny. It's like we're the, one of the only industries that is given no budget, uh, is expected to have a significant return on investment with very little support and infrastructure, and then gets yelled at when we don't. And I cannot think of any other profession that has that level of expectation on it. And the problem is nobody's speaking up about it. Mm. Like, like nobody's saying, Hey, like I, I there's a well, did something, one of their conferences where a woman, where somebody spoke about, um, the Domino's issue or Domino's pizza was really terrible for a few years. And they yeah. came out and they had all those commercials that were like, our pizza tastes like cardboard. And then they revived themselves and they came out and they totally reformulated their products. And I remember it was referred to as the, uh, we suck win back approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like putting your tail between your legs and demonstrating some humility is one of the ways to foster connection because when somebody is humble, in most cases, unless someone's an absolute jerk, the person who's the recipient of the humility is likely, if they're a half decent human, to express and demonstrate some grace in response to that. Yeah. So you were willing to take the risk to be humble. I could totally annihilate you some more, but it's really hard to be humble. So I'm going to acknowledge that you were willing to do that. And let's see what we can do differently going forward instead of you know, doing what a lot of us might be tempted to do in that situation and just kind of further diminish the person. So as an industry, I really believe that we have to be honest about what is working and what is not. And to expand the conversation, we've had this model of six dimensions of wellness with career well-being being one of them. And that is the area, career and emotional well-being is, is where I'm choosing to focus in this next season of my work. Because when those things are off, everything else is off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And off in, in we're, and I, in your voice is one of those. And, and and we've talked about some of the other people that are really asking those important questions, but it's refreshing to hear when someone moves away from nutrition and physical activity as the primary focus of our wellness. Mm -hmm. And just let's take a step back. Let's talk about how do we feel about who we are and then go down that path, that self-discovery path? How do we feel about our relationships? How do we feel about the people around us? Because we know all the research points to our social connections are part of our well-being. They're mm -hmm. tied. Plenty of research continues to show that is such an important part of our well-being. So let's yeah. honor it. Let's talk about it and let's, and let's enhance it. Um, and then let's get into our, you know, our spiritual and, and our occupational and emotional and really dive into how many of us feel inspired by our work. <laughs> and, is, and, you know, and I always, I always like to ask people about that because for some people, their work isn't supposed, they don't want it to be all that inspiring because they have other things in life that are. Yep. And, that, and the work they do fuels that. That's beautiful. You know, and then there's people who need to be inspired by their work to show up every day and do it. And we need to make sure that we're, we're honoring all of that as well so that we can make sure that we're doing the best and having these conversations with people and help them grow and, and then um, live, live through the benefit of feeling what it, you know, what it feels like to be connected, to, to be growing, to feel like you have a path in life and to be 
connected to that purpose and, and, and to belong to your family, to your friends, to your loved ones, to your husband, wife, to your kids, and make sure that we're really, really valuing that, those. We valued um, nutrition and physical activity, and, and those are very important things to continue to value. And they're obviously significant interventions in helping people live healthier lives. But I don't know how many conversations we have in the corporate setting. We start talking about wellness programming. It starts with steps programs or mm-hmm. um, nutrition and lunch and learn on, on eating more fiber. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm willing to do that. But can we talk about the fact that you just reduced your employee population by 10%? You're mm-hmm. expected to do more over the next year and no one's gotten a raise in two years. Because it doesn't matter what I say no one's going to really listen. They're just checking their box for their 25 bucks. They're going to get back at the end of the year or whatever the program is. Yeah. Those we can do better. And that's, that's why I wanted to bring you here to to hash this out. (laughs) It's kind of like my own self coaching (laughs) (laughs) to go through the process too. But I think, but I, I, I think like I, you know, from the beginning I said, you know, your, your, your voice is important. And it's one of those in the field that is in its, you have an authenticity to it and you're empathetic. And if those two things are working for you, then that's where your ability to impact leadership and organizations will be there. So, um, yeah. So as we wrap around here on our time, what I wanted to ask you as we, as we look into what's next, I know we've talked a lot about the evolving part of our field or our field in and of itself evolving into talking about things, but what you're looking at here over the next year, you know, not only for yourself, but where we want to go and some of the conversations we should be having, what is it that you want to see us start to achieve better? Yeah. One, I want us to begin to be honest, more honest about our own journeys. Uh, I've found that a lot of times in the wellness space, there's this tendency to portray ourselves as the pinnacle of perfection we work out, we drink kale shakes, we eat something uh, for breakfast. <laughs> right. Like we get, we get added to your point. We get adequate fiber every day. We meditate and we do deep breathing. I want to begin to see us talk about the real struggles that it, that it is to, to be well in every sense of the word and to share like every single person, even the one who on the surface seems the most perfect, which I had that perception from people. It's like, oh, she's like the walking poster child for wellness. And I was like, you have no idea. And then I got mono and that really set things off. But um, if we can begin, because what I found is that when I started being more honest about, uh, yeah, like I had, uh, you know, this body image issue or um, yeah, I really struggled because I lost weight and then I gained it and I was afraid of what everyone was going to think of me. Or, um, yeah, I really struggled communicating effectively in my marriage and I've found it to be really, really challenging or I can be a loner and it's trouble. It's, it's it's historically been hard for me to make friends. I found that when I started just being honest and it's not looking for a pity party, it's not looking to be a martyr, but if we could begin to be more honest about the real struggles that each of us faces so that when we are working with people at our organizations, they see us as a human. They see us as somebody that they see themselves in in some ways. And we can certainly be someone who's you know, encouraging because people need that and someone who's supportive because people need that. And, and we can begin to practice some of these things. If we become the epitome of empathy, wouldn't that be amazing? Mm-hmm. Um, if we can begin to be the epitome of self-awareness, 
so that we're aware of how we show up and how it's impacting people. Um, if, if we can be the people that are the first to write a thank you note to somebody who's done something kind for us or to call out in a meeting uh, somebody who has done a great job and celebrate them. If, if we can be the people who in the lunchroom put our phone down and give someone our full attention, like that can start to change things because what we're really there to do is to lead by example. And those are the ways I think that are some of the most significant ways that we can begin to lead by example. And it's really about being more present and available to other people. Mm. And I really think that if we begin to do those things, that that will begin or continue to shift our industry for, for the better. And that we would keep asking questions of ourselves, of each other, of our industry, of our leaders, that we would have the courage to do that and not be afraid of ruffling someone's feathers potentially because we are willing to be curious and take in different perspectives. So those are some things that I would suggest going forward that we show up more intentionally as, as, as human beings and other people will notice that something is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with those sentiments, but I think you, I think you're in right in having us break down those barriers. I mean, I, in, like you said, oftentimes we're the least like person when we show up to a work site because of all of the things that people think about who we are and what we do. Mm -hmm. And yet we're all just as broken as everyone else. We're all processing and struggling. But the one thing that we might have is that we've gotten to the point of understanding how we can build a path to help others. Mm -hmm. And so come with me, you know, to mm -hmm. use the energy bus metaphor again, but that's what I want. I would love to see the field move more into that come with me mm -hmm. rather than do this. Mm -hmm. and, and like we talked about, I mean, it, you know, we could, I feel like we need to set up another, <laughs> do like a round two here. We can dig in a little bit more sure. on a lot of those, on a lot of those issues, but I know your work is growing and expanding and um, you'll be presenting here in Wisconsin at the wellness councils um, summit here conference in September. Mm -hmm. And so we'll continue to watch and keep an eye on, on your growth. Um, I have one last question for you earlier. That, earlier you mentioned that singer was one of your, one of your expected careers. So <laughs> I have a question for you. If you were a finalist on American Idol and honestly, I, uh, we all have impressions of what American Idol is. Well, I don't want to get into that. But if you had to sing one song to get to be the winner, what would you choose? Oh, man, dude. Defying Gravity from Wicked. Ah, oh, wow. Defying Gravity from Wicked. Okay. That has become my <laughs> mantra, that song. And so, and, and then even more recently, I was doing yesterday, I was at the R. Kelly song, I Believe I Can Fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <right>? oh, outstanding <laughs> outstanding yeah. Uh, yeah i feel like uh, I, I, was, I thought you're gonna make me sing which i would do but i feel like that was almost like what was coming <laughs> <laughs> well now, now that i know that we'll save that maybe for, for your <laughs> podcast and let you select a song and maybe practice a little bit but, oh gosh okay <laughs> but i wanted yeah i want to thank you 
This is wonderful. I, I, again, appreciate your time and thank you for joining us here on the Highway to Well. And we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back on here soon and keep digging into the field and deconstructing it and trying to make it better. Yeah. Well, thanks for a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right.